The Guardian. Questions to the Prime Minister, Mr Andrew Stevenson. Question number one, Mr Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Before listing my engagements, I'm sure the whole House will wish to join me in paying tribute to Corporal David O'Connor of 40 Commando Royal Marines and Corporal Channing Day of 3 Medical Regiment Royal Army Medical Corps. We owe them and all others who have lost their lives a deep debt of gratitude. Their courage, their dedication, their sheer professionalism will never be forgotten by our nation and our sincere condolences are with their colleagues, their friends and their families. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Mr Andrew Stevenson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm sure the whole House will want to associate itself with the Prime Minister's remarks about our brave service personnel and send our deepest condolences to their families. Will the Prime Minister confirm that if he can't get a good deal for Britain in the EU budget negotiations, he will use the veto and reject any advice on this matter from those who gave our rebate away. I can can absolutely I can absolutely give my honourable friend that assurance. This government is taking the toughest line in these budget negotiations of any government since we joined the European Union. At best we would like it cut, at worst frozen, and I'm quite prepared to use the veto if we don't get a deal as good for Britain. Clear, Mr. Speaker, it is in our interest to try and get a deal because a seven-year freeze would keep our bills down compared to annual budgets. Now, Labour's position is one of complete opportunism. They gave away half the rebate, they sent the budget through the roof, and now they want a posture rather than get a good deal for Britain. The next will see right through it. Mr Speaker, can I start by joining the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Corporal David O'Connor of 40 Commando, the Royal Marines, and Corporal Channing Day of 3 Medical Regiment, the Royal Army Medical Corps. Their deaths are a reminder of the unremitting danger that our troops face on a daily basis on our behalf. They both showed the the utmost courage and bravery, and our condolences go to their family and friends. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister has an opportunity today to get a mandate from this House for a real terms reduction in the EU budget, which which he says he wants, over the next seven years, which he could take to the negotiations in Europe. Why is he resisting that opportunity? I think, Mr Speaker, the whole country will see through what is rank opportunism. People haven't forgotten the fact that they gave away half our rebate in one negotiation, that they agreed a massive increase to the EU budget under their government. And now today, they haven't even put down their own resolution on this issue. The nation will absolutely see straight through it. He's playing politics, he's not serving the country. Mr Speaker, when it comes to consistency, he seems to have forgotten what he said as Leader of the Opposition just four months before the last general election. This is what he said. I I would have thought they were interested in what the Prime Minister said when he was Leader of the Opposition, Mr Speaker. This is what he said. At a time when budgets are being cut in the UK, he said, does the Prime Minister agree in reviewing the EU budget? The main purpose 
should be to push for a real terms cut. That's what he said when he was in opposition. So, Mr Speaker, when it comes to opportunism, this Prime Minister is a gold medalist. At a time when he's cutting the education budget by 11%, the transport budget by 15%, and the police budget by 20%, how can we even be giving up on a cut in the EU budget before the negotiations have begun? We have to make cuts in budgets because we're dealing with a record debt and deficit. talk about consistency, perhaps he can explain why his own members of the European Parliament voted against the budget freeze that we achieved last year. Perhaps he can explain why the socialist group in the European Parliament that he's such a proud member of are calling not for an increase in the budget, not for a freeze in the budget, but for a 200 billion euro increase in the budget. It, they want to get rid of the rest of the British rebate. Is that his policy? In Miliband. It's good to it's, it's good to see. It's good, it's good to see the crimson order, tide back. Order, 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 order. Government backbenchers, including ministers, apparently approaching maturity. They've really got to no, I fear not. They've got to tackle their behavioural problems before it's too late. Ed Miliband. Well, he's certainly getting very angry, Mr Speaker. Maybe that's because he's worried about losing the vote this afternoon. And the reality is, our MEPs voted the same way as his on the, on the motion before the European Parliament ten, years, ten, ten days ago. The reality is this. He can't convince anyone on Europe. Last year, he flounced out of the December negotiations with a veto, and the agreement went ahead anyway. He's thrown in the towel even before these negotiations have begun. He can't convince European leaders. He can't even convince his own backbenchers. He is weak abroad. He is weak at home. It's John Major all over again. His, his position is completely incredible. He says he wants a cut in the EU budget, but he doesn't sanction a veto. Now, we've made clear we will use the veto as I've used it before. So let me ask him, will you use the veto? be using the veto, and I, I would ask the Prime Minister, it was about the tenth time I've asked him to respect parliamentary procedure in these matters. Caroline Noakes. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The South East region is often regarded as the engine driver of the British economy, but the Solent region faces many challenges, particularly with the announcement of job losses at Ford last week. Will my right honourable friend agree with me that the case for a city deal for Southampton and Portsmouth is particularly compelling? I do think it is particularly compelling that we make sure that Southampton has a city deal. I understand they are on the list. Obviously, the news from Ford was very disappointing. It was a, a black spot in otherwise a very, very strong performance by the British automotive industry. And I know the business secretary will be working very closely with Southampton City Council to do everything we can to help people find jobs. Mr Andrew Miller. Mr Speaker, may I ask a very straightforward question that should command a straightforward answer? In the forthcoming Police and Crime Commissioner elections, it's predicted that the turnout is going to be as low as 20%. Does the Prime Minister think that gives democratic legitimacy? 
I want the turnout to be as high as possible, but I recognise in new elections for a new post it is always a challenge. It's, it's even a challenge when you've got uh, dedicated Labour MPs resigning from this House to stand as police and crime commissioners. But one point the crime commissioner will be able to make in his constituency is to celebrate the fact that since the election, crime's down 20%. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, in recent months, Northern Lincolnshire has benefited from a number of positive announcements from both government and the private sector that will boost the local economy. However, my right honourable friend will be aware that Kimberley Clark announced the closure of their factory in Barton-upon-Humber in my constituency last week, with a loss of up to 500 jobs. Can, the, uh, can my right honourable friend assure me that everything possible will be done by the government to attract new business to the area? Well, I can certainly give my honourable friend that assurance, and I know it is very sad news for the workers at Barton-upon-Humber. As I understand it, the local council is working very closely with Job Centre Plus and the company to establish a local task force, and the government will give it our support to support employees and to help them find alternative employment. Steve Rotherham. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Following the press reporting of the Hillsborough disaster and the phone hacking scandal, self-regulation... By the, of the press, by the press, is simply no longer, longer acceptable to the public. Yeah. More than three quarters of respondents to two recent polls back an end to media self-regulation. Prime Minister, your ministers have been briefing against Leveson. Yeah. Whose side are you on? The public or the press? Yeah. On anybody's side in this, members really must adhere to the proper procedures of this House, which they ought to know by now, the Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, I think that we should wait for the Leveson report to come out. A lot of work has been done. What I want to see is a robust regulatory system. And I think what matters most of all, as I said in the House, I think, last week, is to make sure that if newspapers get things wrong, they can be fined, that journalists can be properly investigated, that there are proper prominent apologies. We know what a proper regulatory system should look like. We don't have one now. We need one for the future. Jack Lepresti. Firstly, I'd like to echo uh, my honourable friend, the Prime Minister's tribute to our armed forces and our fallen comrades. I think the country owes them, their families and their loved ones a huge debt of honour and gratitude. Last week, we saw the sentencing of former staff of Winterbourne View Hospital, who were found guilty of ill treatment and neglect. I had hoped that these prosecutions would help to bring some closure and at least a sense of justice served to the victims and their families. However, this week, we've learned that patients from Winterbourne View may have been subject to further abuse and neglect elsewhere. Does the Prime Minister agree with me and the former Minister for Care Services, the Right Honourable Member for Sutton and Cheam, that care providers such as Castlebeck, who ran Winterbourne View, should be subject to prosecution for willful corporate negligence? Well, I, I pay tribute to what my honourable friend said about our armed forces. On the issue of Winterbourne View, I think anyone who saw those television pictures about how very vulnerable people were being treated would be absolutely shocked and would, just like uh, me and I'm sure like him, want to make sure that the law will go exactly where the evidence leads. And if there need to be further prosecutions, there should be. They are shocking pictures, shocking things that happened. We should judge our society by how we deal with the most vulnerable and needy people, and what happened was completely unacceptable. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, Speaker, it's welcome that the British economy is out of the longest double-dip recession since the war. But Lord Heseltine says today, and I quote, the message I keep hearing is the UK doesn't have a strategy for growth and wealth creation. Who does the Prime Minister blame for that? What, what, um, 
what Michael Heseltine actually said is the coalition is fundamentally on the right track. He said, I praise its work for the industrial strategy plans, for pioneering city devolution, and for the revolutions in education and tackling unemployment. That is what Michael Heseltine said. But frankly, we can sit here all afternoon trading quotes. I think he is making a much bigger point. And this is an excellent report. And what he's saying is actually over decades in our economy, it became too centralized. Regions and nations of our countries fell behind. Manufacturing halved as a share of uh, national income during the last uh, government. And during the boom years, for instance, in the West Midlands, there were no net new private sector jobs. He's dealing with the big issues. What a pity that all he can do is stand up and try and read out a quote. Mr. Speaker, he says that Lord Heseltine's report says he's on the right track. Goodness knows what his report would have said if he said it was on the wrong track. He, sa he, says, he says there's no strategy for jobs and growth, business has, has no confidence in him, and deregulation, his chosen approach, is not the answer. Now, let me turn to a specific area of Lord Heseltine's report, Recommendation 61, which I'm sure he's familiar with. Uh, he, he, says, he says, and I quote, the government needs to set out a definitive and unambiguous energy policy. <laughs> this is obviously, Mr Speaker, an appropriate day to be considering this recommendation on energy after the last 20... It's, it's good to see the business secretary down the bench, by the way. Uh, I'm sorry that growth committee that he's on is so unmemorable that he can't remember it. Uh, 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 this is an appropriate day to be considering this recommendation. So, so, so his energy... Mr. Speaker, uh, his energy secretary, his energy secretary says he's against wind farms, and enough is enough. Whilst his energy secretary, uh, order, order. Let me just say to government backbenchers, it's very straightforward. They either calm down, or the session will be extended at whoever's inconvenience that may involve. Let's just be very clear. It's incredibly straightforward. Ed Miliband, Speaker, his energy minister says he's against wind farms, and enough is enough. While his energy secretary says he's gung ho for them. Who speaks for the government? The energy secretary or the energy minister? Well, today the jokes have been bad, and the substance has been bad too. It's not a uh, good day. I tell you, I tell you why it is a good day. I know it's a good day to talk about energy policy because today Hitachi are investing £20 billion in our nuclear industry. Today is a good day to talk about energy because there's more investment in renewable energy under three years of this government than under 13 years of their government. And it's a good day to talk about energy policy because we've got a green investment bank up and running. That is what's happening under this government. There has been no change towards renewable energy. Let me explain exactly. We've got a big pipeline of onshore and offshore wind projects that are coming through. We're committed to those. But frankly, all parties are going to have to have a debate in this House and outside this House about what happens once those targets are met. And he ought to understand that if he could bother to look at the substance. Answer, Mr. Speaker. There, there are investors. There are investors all around this country who want certainty about energy policy. You've got. 
You've got one minister, it's very simple for the Prime Minister, you've got one minister who says he's totally against wind energy. That's the energy minister that he appointed, having sacked the previous guy. Uh, and they've got the energy secretary who says he's gung-ho for wind farms. Now, he just has to make a choice which, where he stands. I mean, after all, he's got a wind turbine on his house, so I thought he was in favour of wind turbines. But here is the reality. Lord Heseltine says it in, it says in his report that there are people who are resistant to his ideas. We know who they are, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister. The evidence of the last two and a half years is that deregulation, sink or swim, their answer is not the answer. Lord Heseltine's right and they're wrong. Well, I've got one thing to say. Not, not you, Mr Speaker. He. He's no Michael Heseltine. Here, Mr. Swales, and I feel sure the people of Redcar do. Mr. Ian Swales. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The, the Russians want to award the prestigious Utshikov Medal to Arctic convoy veterans. The governments of Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the USA have agreed. The UK government have refused. Will the Prime Minister get this d- decision reversed quickly so that my constituent John Ramsey and this other, the rest of this dwindling band of veterans get the rec- recognition they so richly deserve? I have every sympathy with uh, my honourable friend and with his constituent, and that is why we have asked uh, Sir John Holmes to conduct this review, not just into medals in general, but to look specifically at some of the most important cases, of which the Arctic convoys, I think, is probably the most pressing. And as you you ask, he is getting on with it. Chris Bryant. (laughs) The, uh, The Foreign Secretary... The Foreign Secretary said yesterday that the rules of this House require that Ministers answer questions. So, there is a stash of embarrassing emails, isn't there? Adam Smith had to publish every single one of his emails and ended up resigning. Why won't the Prime Minister publish all of his emails? Can he really be a fit and proper person to judge on the future of press regulation if he won't come clean with the British public? There is actually another rule of this House, which is that if you insult someone in this House, you do an apology. And I have to say, I am still waiting. The fact is, it is this government that set up the Leveson inquiry, and I gave all the information that Leveson asked to that inquiry. Simon Hart. Uh, the, um, The Owl and the Pussycat, Mr Speaker, is a coffee shop in Larne in my constituency. They've just had their business rates hiked up by 700%, and the council is coming after the money even though they haven't yet heard the appeal, which means it might have to close and jobs will be lost. This is not unique to Wales, so can the Prime Minister come to the rescue? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I have every sympathy with uh, the business that he, he mentions in his constituency. Of course, business rates are a devolved issue, so this is something that needs to be taken up with the Welsh Assembly Government. In terms of what we've done in England, we've doubled small business uh, rate relief to help half a million small firms. We've made it easier for small firms and shops to claim small business rate relief, and we've given local councils new powers to levy local business rate discounts, for example, in order to support the sorts of shops and pubs that he's referring to. I think that's the right approach for England, and I'm sure he'll want to take that case to Wales. Heidi Alexander. Thank you, Mr Speaker. 
In 2007, the Prime Minister identified Lewisham Hospital as one of 29 hospitals he would be prepared to get into a bare-knuckle fight over. Yet on Monday, it emerged that Lewisham's A&E and maternity services could end up paying the price for financial failures elsewhere in the NHS. Which side of this bare-knuckle fight is he now on? The, the fight that we're on the side on is increasing the resources going into the NHS. That is a decision that we have taken, including extra money into Lewisham, and she is on the side of cutting money into the NHS. What we have done, which the previous government didn't, is set out that there will be no changes to NHS configurations unless they have the support of local GPs, unless they have strong public and patient engagement, unless they're backed by sound clinical evidence and they provide support for patient choice. Those sorts of protections were never there under the last government. They are now. Margot James. Thank you, Mr Speaker. In light of last week's positive growth figures, does the Prime Minister agree with me that policies requiring yet more spending, more borrowing and more debt are the precise opposite of what our country needs? friend is entirely right. The news last week was welcome that the economy is growing, unemployment is coming down, inflation is coming down, the rate of small business creation is going up, there are a million more people employed in the private sector than there were two years ago. And the one absolute certainty is that the worst approach, and Michael Heseltine confirms this in his report, would be to see more spending, more borrowing and more debt, because that is what got us into the mess in the first place. The party opposite have got only one growth plan, and that is to grow the deficit. Jim Shannon. <clears throat> I thank the Prime Minister for his condolences on the death of his constituent, uh, my constituent, Corporal Channing Day. She was a courageous young lady. Uh, Corporal Channing Day always wanted to join the army and for eight years served as a medic. Her job was to save lives. She had run the line of fire to give aid. Imagine what it meant to that wounded soldier to see someone running to help when all, when all hell was bursting around him. You're not alone. Corporal Channing Day is not alone today. She will soon return to the bosom of her family, to her mother, father, sisters, brothers, friends and family who loved her dearly, to the community who are immensely proud of the achievements she has made. This House and this great nation of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland salute her courage, her bravery and also her heroism. Prime Minister, will you agree with me that Army medics are often the unsung heroes of conflict and will you agree to meet with me and my colleagues on this side of the House to discuss the implementation of the military covenant in Northern Ireland. Well, first of all, I'd be very happy to meet him and his colleagues to talk about the implementation of the Covenant in Northern Ireland. It's something I have spoken to the, Deputy, uh, the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister in Northern Ireland. I know there are issues about implementing the Covenant, but I hope that it can be done, and I'd be happy to have that meeting. I think he spoke very strongly and movingly about Corporal Channing Day, and I think he's absolutely right that those in the Medical Regiment, the Royal Army Medical Corps, do a fantastic job. It's been a huge honour and a privilege for me to meet some of them, including in Afghanistan. And when you see the service that they provide, you really can put your hand on your heart and know that British military personnel in theatre are getting as good medical care as I think anyone ever in history has got. It is truly remarkable what they do. Philip Hollabone. Uh, number eight, sir. Prime Minister. Healthier Together has promised that Kettering Hospital will retain its accident emergency and maternity services. Any suggestion otherwise, including by the opposition, is simply scaremongering of the worst kind. Kettering has the sixth highest household growth rate in the whole country, and A&E admissions are up 10% year on year. 
Given that Kettering General Hospital has been at the very heart of the local community for well over 100 years, don't local people deserve a clear assurance that our much-loved and badly needed local hospital has a bright future ahead of it? Well, I, I gave my honourable friend the, the strongest possible assurance, and the point I'd made, as I made to the honourable lady opposite, is that there can't be any changes unless there's full public consultation, unless there is the support of local GPs and strong public and patient engagement. But in the case of Kettering, that is not on the agenda. As I said, any suggestion by the opposition is simply scaremongering of the worst kind, and I can see they're at it again. Lindsay Roy. Thank you, Mr Speaker. It's been emphasised again and again on all sides of the House of the importance of skills to promote economic growth. So why, Prime Minister, did the number of under-19 apprenticeships start fall last year? Well, the number of apprenticeships under this government is about 900,000. It is a record number and it's hugely increased. Julian Sturdy. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. The Government recently announced plans to extend the freeze on council tax for a third year. Unfortunately, the Labour-run City of York Council increased council tax by 2.9% this year and has moved with remarkable speed to confirm a 2.2% increase next year. Can my honourable friend agree with me that such a rise is apparently out of order and not in the interest of York constituents? And will he urge City of York Council to look again? I will certainly join my honourable friend in doing that. government has made money available so that councils can freeze their council tax for a third year in a row. I think this is a very important way of demonstrating that we're on the side of people who want to work hard and get on, who struggle to pay the bills, and I think, frankly, all councils should look at the money that's available and recognise that a council tax freeze is in the interests of all our citizens. Dr Alan Whitehead. When did the Prime Minister become aware of the plans to close Fords at Southampton and Dagenham? And was he aware of those plans when his government awarded a large sum of money from the Regional Growth Fund to that company just a few days earlier? Obviously these issues were discussed and we work very closely with all the automotive industry companies in the United Kingdom. As I said earlier, the news from most of them, from Nissan, from Toyota, from Jaguar Land Rover, has been extremely positive. What happened at Ford in terms of Southampton is clearly uh, very regrettable, but we must do everything we can to help those people into work. Dr Julian Huppert. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm delighted the economy is finally growing and green growth is a key part of this. Is the Prime Minister still committed to this being the greenest government ever, particularly particularly when it comes to its policies on renewable energy? Well, it it is under this government we have seen more investment in green energy in three years than we had from 13 from the party opposite. The green investment bank that we promised, that is up and running. The carbon floor price that we spoke about, that is in place. This is indeed a very green government and it's sticking to its promises. Mr Gareth Thomas. The number of uh, people waiting uh, more than four hours in accident and emergency units has more than doubled in the last two years. And the Prime Minister won't intervene to stop the closures of A&E units at Central Middlesex Hospital, Ealing Hospital, we now know Lewisham, and I suspect, despite his weasel words, Kettering Hospital too. What confidence can my and constituents have that if they end up in casualty, 
say to the honourable gentleman, I could not have been any clearer about the future of Kettering Hospital. And for him to say to that, him to say that, I think is scaremongering of the worst kind. But let me let me tell him what is happening at the hospitals that serve his constituents. In May 2010, there were 52 patients waiting longer than 12 months. How many are there now? None under this government. That is what is actually happening because we're putting the money into the NHS and they'd take it out. John Barron. Further to the result of the vote on the 18th of October regarding the contentious decision to axe the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, and given that we have very recently, only last night, met with the Secretary of State for Defence, would the Prime Minister meet with me and other interested members from across the House to discuss this issue? I'm always happy to talk to colleagues about this issue, as I know the Ministry of Defence and the Secretary of State is. As he knows, we've had to make difficult decisions to put in place the future structure of the Army with 82,000 regular soldiers and a larger reserve of 30,000 Territorial Army soldiers. I think that is the right approach. Clearly, we've had to make some difficult decisions about regiments and about battalions, and in that, we were guided by trying to save as many regiments and cap badges as possible. I think the proposals have taken that into account and are right, but of course, the Defence Secretary will go on listening to representations. Jim Dobbin. Mr. Speaker, will the Prime Minister confirm that the changes to child benefit due to be introduced in January uh, this year, next year? is that the cost of that, the overall cost, is very much over £100 million. The the changes that we are making to child benefit, where we are taking child benefit away altogether from those people earning over £60,000, that is going to save around £2 billion. Now, it is necessary to take tough decisions in order to deal with the massive deficit, bigger than Greece, bigger than Spain, that his party left us. to say, I find it completely inexplicable why the party opposite that says they want those with the broadest backs to share some of the burden oppose the idea of taking uh, child benefit away from people over 60, 70, 80, 90,000. I don't see why the front bench sitting there should go on collecting their child benefit when we're having to make so many other difficult decisions. Jessica Lee. friend join me in congratulating Douglas Gill International in my constituency on their Queen's Award for Enterprise. By by successfully exporting sports marine wear, does he agree with me that this is a fine example of British business on the up, promoting the best of British and indeed the best of Arawash? I think the Honourable Lady makes a very important point. We need to have export-led growth in this country. We need a rebalancing of our economy. That is what the increase in exports and manufacturing and industrial production is all about. But we need to go further and faster. And indeed, that is what Michael Heseltine's excellent report is all about today. Order. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.